Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game with me, Kevin Day, and him, Liverpool University's Kieran Maguire. Luckily, Kieran came through Storm Franklin unscathed, although Kieran, I believe, Storm Baroness is still raging after having to drink warm champagne for five days. Yes, she's not very happy. Uh, Storm Franklin did give me a nice bus journey from Brighton to Liverpool uh, for a significant part of the journey uh, on, on Monday. But uh, yeah, we're all in one piece and uh, and raring to go, of course. Uh, yes, I did a, a, a big benefit gig in London on uh, Monday night, which is part of a charity that Jonathan Pierce, the uh, plus-sized TV football commentator, uh, is part of. Um, uh, and he couldn't get, he couldn't travel from Brighton to London. And if anyone you'd think would be unaffected by a large wind, it would be a twenty-two stone man. But there you go. <laughs> uh, Phil Tufnell was in the audience, which was lovely. And later in the show, we'll be hearing from former Aston Villa, Everton, and Aberdeen chief executive Keith Wyness. But before that, Kieran, it's Newsday, and we have plenty of it. Um, and I, I think the first story is good. Good news. At Berry Fan Group Est eighteen eighty five have completed the purchase of Gig Lane. Yes, this this is a relief. First of all, that uh, the uh, the stadium has effectively been preserved. Um, what's happened is that there has been a government grant from the Community Ownership Fund um, of of a million pounds. That's been matched by uh, some investors, or there's been significant amounts raised from uh, relatively few investors who have put in large amounts, but they're they're trying to generate more money all the time. So what we now have at Bury is that we've got a football ground without a football club in Est 1885, to a certain extent, because they've they've not got players or managers. And then we've got a football club in AFC without a ground to call their own. Now, there's a case here for these two parties coming together and forming a solution, which I'm I'm, I'm hoping is going to be the case. Um, So there there have been a few few run-ins between certain factions within the the alternative fan bases. Uh, It's a bit like the the People's Republic of Judea versus the Judean (laughs) People's Front. Um, But I, I did hear an interview a couple of days ago from... Somebody from Est eighteen eighty five. It looks like you know the two parties are now talking to each other, um, and I think what's most important is that uh, if if they can both use their their independent skill sets and bring them together, that can only be for the benefit, and and that's got to increase the chances of being being able to have a Berry Football Club uh, in as high a tier as possible with the you know with with the rubber stamping of, of the FA. And will the government be expecting anything in return for that million pounds? Because God knows this is a government that expects something in return normally. Um, yes, it, it, it will be very much a community project. Um, it, it will be a case of evidencing that they're going to have a women's team, that there's going to be youth development. Um, I think initially they're going to be playing in grass, but there is talk about having a a, uh, a 3G pitch or 4G pitch, whatever they're called these days, um, and uh, that could then be used and hired out for the community. So uh, it will be monitoring. I I believe uh, the council are are being asked to put in uh, a six-figure sum as well, um, and at present they... They will do so with conditions, i.e., you know, it's, it's the money's got to be used appropriately again to to build together uh, community-based projects um, using the, uh, the facilities of Gig Lane as a hub. So uh, there there are there are conditions attached, but they are the right conditions, in my view. Right, and just to clarify, these are loads or grants? The, these are grants. Right. Um, okay. So so you know the, the money is there. Um, I, I, I did see a tweet from the, the government's levelling up fund, uh, sort of say, saying something along those lines. That's very good. I'm glad that Michael Gove uh, has clarified that for us all. Uh, the governing body for sport in Wales has launched an emergency grant fund for Welsh sports clubs 
whose facilities were damaged by Storm Eunice. And I know you were inconvenienced by it, Kira, but in Wales it caused considerable, considerable damage, didn't it? Um, yeah, I mean, Wales and uh, quite a lot of the south coast. I mean, we, uh, I'm up here in Liverpool, but we've had another power cut uh, following Storm Franklin. So it's, oh. it's, it's happening lots of you know, lots of communities. But fair play to the Welsh government. What they've done here is that Sports Wales have said, uh, and this is aimed at grassroots football, which, you know, as we know, has, has suffered hugely um, on, on the back of the pandemic. And, and just as we're really sort of starting to make some progress in, in terms of establishing football, uh, these these storms have been uh, you know, pretty bad news. So your grants of between £300 and £5,000 will be available to, to fix uh, damage. Uh, and you've got to claim before February the 28th. So if you are a Welsh club, um, you've not got a lot of leeway, uh, but you know, we, we would encourage you to, to to make the applications and uh, again be able to to offer uh, sporting facilities and 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 just the sheer joy of being able to go and watch a football match and yeah. go in the clubhouse afterwards which does mean so much to so many people it, it does make you wonder Kieran and yes I understand that there's no reason that football should be treated differently to any other business but this this money is clearly available when bad things happen so why can't it be available when clubs are struggling just in general why does it have to wait for a disaster before the government cough up and say here you are we can help when under normal circumstances they're most reluctant to help aren't they well i, I believe there is no such thing as a magic money tree ah, although okay. if, if you were applying for ppe grants and uh, <laughs> if, if we take a look at the uh, the latest parliamentary report uh, in, in, in terms of the extent of the fraud which has taken place, and which is absolutely appalling, £15 billion, pounds, uh, that, that's going to hit uh, taxpayers for uh, a long period of time. But that, that's for another podcast, I think. Yes, indeed it is, because the uh, producer guy tells us off if we get political. We, we all know why. We can imagine which way his politics lie, because he's a multi-billionaire. Um, you sounded just like Ali then, when you said there's no such thing as a magic money tree. <laughs> I, I, I hear, to your pocket money. I, I hear that expression quite a lot, <laughs> as, as well as this, you'd be amazed how many things don't grow on trees as well. It's, it's incredible. Um, so whenever she says that, I go, "Who am I, Chris Packham?" Um, <laughs> uh, the EFL are to clamp down on clubs who are late paying wages. This is probably long overdue as well, isn't it? Yes, um, if we if we take a look at what has happened historically, there's sort of been a uh, a case by case uh, review, and charges have been made. If if we go back to what happened in respect of Macclesfield Town, where the owner there was absolutely appalling with regards yeah. to the the payment of yeah. wages, um, it could also have been argued that had there been automatic penalties um, arising when Steve Dale first acquired Berry Football Club. Uh, because there were issues with wages there, that uh, perhaps he could have been dealt with quicker than he was, and, and perhaps Berry Football Club could have been saved. Um, the, the one caveat I have here is that um, under the, the the proposed new rules, clubs have to self-report. Now, if you are a wrong'un, the last thing you're going to do is to self-report the non-payment of wages. I mean, admittedly, it, it might come out fairly quickly because the players would find out, the players would go yeah. to the, the PFA and the PFA would take it up. Um, but uh, if, if you do uh, uh, delay the payment of wages, you would be subject to an immediate transfer embargo. So again, in, in, you know, in January, in, in, in the summer months, our club's going to self-report if they're trying to get a couple of players in. Um, you know, th there is the scope for a bit of, uh, a bit of shenanigans, shall we say. Um, but uh, I think it, it, it does act as a deterrent for the, from those owners who have perhaps gambled on clubs and then trying to weasel their way out of their financial commitments because it looks as if the points deductions will be automatic um, rather than going through a, a panel, as has happened historically. <clears throat> yeah, you can't imagine players <laughs> not actually mentioning the fact they're not being paid any wages. And also, it seems odd that you would try and avoid a transfer embargo to bringing new players that you can't pay anyway. 
since you know, we're not paying the 24 we got, let's bring in two more and not pay them. <laughs> um, this next expression is one I didn't expect to ever use in my life, Kieran. There's a story coming up about Man City that has a concept I never expected to discuss in my life. But this, <laughs> this next expression, VAR light, VAR light, is to be rolled out across the EFL and Women's Super League. Obviously, I'm legally obliged as a comedian to say if they do it quickly, it will be the Varlight Express. But what, <laughs> what on earth is... I mean, VAR's... I mean, just VAR itself is bad enough. But what's Varlight? And how much is it going to cost the EFL and Women's Super League? Well, um, Varlight is a pared down version of what we presently have in the Premier League, where there are, I think it's around about 20 cameras. Um, and uh, what, what the uh, EFL and the WSL are considering at present um, is, is a, uh, I think you can have three, four cameras involved, and it is there to assist the referee. It looks as if the, the offside lines, which have, have brought so much joy to the nation um, over the course of the last couple of years as we try to work out whether somebody's elbow is offside or, or other such uh, strange interpretations of the law. Um, you know, the, the rules are simple. If it's one of our players, he's not offside. If he's one of theirs, he's offside. Now, that's what I call Varlight, and it's a lot quicker and simpler, isn't it? I, Keir, we've discussed this before. Why they just don't put it to a vote? All exactly. you have to all you have to do is have a button under every seat at Sellers Park on the Amex, and you just get the fans to press whether or not they think it's offside. It's much simple, much more effective. It it's, it seems a strange halfway house to me. I mean, I, I watched the Arsenal women versus Chelsea women uh, a week or two ago, and there was a blatant handball in the last seconds. And you know, VAR you'd like to think would pick that up, although it didn't yeah. pick up West Ham uh, Dawson elbowing the ball into the back of the net against Leicester. It's, it seems strange to me. You either have it properly or you don't or you don't have it. But in terms of in terms of finances, who's going to pay for this, Kieran? Uh, it, w- it would have to be paid uh, by the, the central authorities themselves and, and, and effectively it would impact upon the distribution of money to individual clubs. Uh, I mean, the, the aim is to try to reduce the number of errors which are made by referees. And although... You know, we, we we do you know jibe at referees. Um, they they do get ninety eight percent of decisions yeah. right. You know, if, if you take a look at historically, VAR has increased the number of correct decisions uh, in terms of where the law presently stands. Now, you can argue, uh, you know, and, and yeah, you know, this this is clearly a discussion best made in the pub as to which laws should be changed in respect of the game to take into account the the acceleration of technology. But uh, with the the price of football in terms of qualifying for Champions League, getting relegated, getting promoted, the, the, the numbers involved are so huge. That's why the technology was introduced, because uh, there, there was there's this huge this huge pressure on referees. And, uh, you know, they they do deserve perhaps a bit more sympathy because you know, we, we both we, we We've both been watching football for you know a good fifty years. It's, it's a lot faster than it used to be, um, and and the players cheat a lot more than they used to as well. So you put those two factors together, um, and the referees do need assistance, and and that that's why you know I've said and I think some others have said take out some of the responsibilities for the referee, such as timekeeping, for example, and, and make that uh, make that an independent yeah. role for somebody else, and 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 that can help in terms of time wasting and so on. Yeah, you say we've been watching it for a good fifty years. I'd say five years of it have been good. <laughs> we've been watching. We've been watching it for forty four. We have been watching it for fifty years. Again. True. Well, it, it will also if if there is VAR EFL grounds there as well. It will also take out that ludicrous anomaly where some FA Cup ties are down by VAR and some aren't, which I don't think is entirely fair. Now, this is a, a phrase I, I don't often get to use, Kieran, either. But it's not been a good week for Russian oligarchs. Uh, <laughs> it sounds like it. That should be a satirical comedy, shouldn't it? It's not been a good week for Russian oligarchs as they've got some big sanctions coming their way. Uh, but we've just discovered, Kieran, how much uh, Russian oligarch Roman Abramovich has lent to Chelsea over the years, and it's rather a tidy amount of money, isn't it? 
Yes, it is £1.514 billion. Pounds. So that's that's a lot of zeros. Yeah. Um, uh, and you know, we, we've said before, Chelsea have, have made the highest losses of all the clubs in the Premier League uh, over the course of its existence. Nearly all of those losses, or a significant proportion of those losses, have arisen since Roman Abramovich uh, acquired the club. And uh, you know, we... we there's this phrase that I use sometimes called, which is trophy asset. It's, it's where somebody buys into a business or buys into a project with no intention of getting a financial return. Um, and, and clearly that is the case with Roman Abramovich. And uh, he, uh, yeah, he, he controls Chelsea FC PLC via his private company, which is called Fordstam Limited, which in turn is owned by a company called Camberley International Investments, which, uh, again, having done some done some searching, it's, it's based in either or perhaps both of Jersey and the British Virgin Islands. So we're, we're hoping to uh, take the price of football live to Jersey. Uh, we have had an invite. Um, so perhaps we can pop along to the offices there of of Camberley International. And if if producer guy wants to send us to the British Virgin Islands uh, on on a second fact finding trip, I'm, I'm sure me and you could yeah we, we could have a we, we could have a TV show out of this. Yeah, that's quite true. You remember that phrase you used earlier, self reporting. Uh, <laughs> yes, our, our trip to the British Virgin Islands would be self paying. <laughs> yeah. Guy's policy would be very much yes. Of course, you can go to the British Virgin Islands. I'll send you a link to British Airways website. Um, we, I think we'll probably speak about this more on Sunday, Kieran, when we get more details. But UEFA announced yesterday that they would be looking at sanctions for some of the Russian owners of football clubs across Europe. So we'll get Guy to do some research on that because that could have some. Disturb, not necessarily for Chelsea, but it could certainly have some disturbing implications for big clubs across Europe financially. So we'll, we'll go into that in some detail on Sunday. In, in the meantime, Monday, I beg your pardon. It's confusing because we record it on Sunday and also because we're recording this at stupid o'clock in the morning. So, um, <laughs> Well, morning is fine. Well, yes, yeah, I'm aware actually that 20 past nine for some people is halfway through the working day, but <laughs> for me it really isn't. Now, um, it says here that some club called Brighton uh, are going to pay their non-playing staff bonuses of 20% if they finish in the top half of the table, which... Uh, Seems nice on the outside. I haven't delved into it, but uh, it, it seems like a nice gesture from a billionaire. Well, um, it, it's you know, as as somebody that's that's worked in the world of employment as well, you're, you're fully aware of incentivising staff. So, yeah, so what 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 Brighton have done is that uh, when they first got to the Premier League, I, I believe staff were given a a ten percent bonus if they uh, if the club avoided relegation. And uh, that that then stopped for a couple of years. This, this, this is from David Ornstein, Ornstein in the in the in the Athletic, who's, who's reported this. Um, but they now have a, a bonus scheme which says if they finished in the top half of the table, and, and I, let's be honest, that's not been something as a fan I've, I've really had to worry about for the first four seasons of the Premier League. Uh, if, if we finish in the top half that bonus increases to 20% and then it goes up by an additional 2% for every additional place. So uh, if we do go on a remarkable run and uh, uh, both Manchester City and Liverpool do a one of them, um, <laughs> that's, that, look, Google that one, kids. Um <laughs> Then uh, we could that Brighton could be paying a bonus of forty percent of wages to non-playing staff. But I, I think, uh, you know, rivalries aside, I think this is a good way to to make staff realise that they are part of the the overall uh, welfare and, and uh, benefits of of the football club. If if staff do their right, do their jobs correctly, it helps get the players in the right frame of mind, and the players do their jobs rightly, it helps to get the staff. So if you, everybody effectively you know supporting each other and ultimately you know you are all colleagues um then, then that is to be uh, applauded you know the players will have their own bonus schemes which, be, which will be linked um and, and the reason why 
the club can do this or can afford to do this, if people say, well, that, you know, is it going to be expensive? Um, remember, in the uh, Premier League, we now have what's referred to as merit payments. And, and with the the most recent re recalibration of the numbers, it's worth around about £2.2 million per place uh, yeah. if you finish you know, 10th uh, compared to 11th and, and, and so on. So so the money is coming out of the, the success pot that the club itself would receive. Yes, it's a success pot. Is that a, is that a word? That doesn't sound right somehow, does it? <laughs> Sounds vaguely sinister. <laughs> um, it's a good thing that Brighton is doing. The problem is, of course, Kieran, that the playing staff are going to be less than popular with the non-playing staff if they finish eleventh. There's going yep. to be a, there's going to be a lot of there's going to be a lot of tea accidentally spilt in players' laps <laughs> around about May. Um, this next story, Kieran, is a, is a particularly sad one, mm. uh, and it's taken a long time to reach this stage. I was going to say conclusion, but it's not a conclusion at all for the family involved. But Ajax have finally agreed a settlement with the family of Api Nouri, uh, and it's taken close on five years for this to happen, Kieran. Perhaps you could uh, give us a little bit of context about the story before you talk about the finances. Yeah. Um, Api Nouri was, was a player who, who came through the academy ranks at, at Ajax. Um, he played for the Netherlands uh, national youth team at yeah, under 15, 16, 17 level. He, he was a pr- promising midfield player. Um, and then, tragically, um, there was a pre-season friendly against Werder Bremen and he suffered a, a cardiac arrhythmia um, on the pitch, I, I believe. Yeah. And... Um, there was there was inadequate medical treatment at the time, um, and they they failed to resuscitate the young man. Uh, I think he was only seventeen or eighteen at the time. Um, Ajax themselves undertook uh, an investigation, um, and and the conclusions of the investigation was that more should have been done at the time. The young man went into a coma. He suffered severe brain damage um, as a result of this. Um, so, so what Ajax have done, uh, I mean, they have, they've agreed to pay all of his historic, and they have, I mean, they have been paying his medical bills. They, they will continue to pay his future medical bills. Um, they've agreed uh, a further settlement with the family of around about £6.4 million pounds, um, to, to, you know, as, to, to assist for his care going forward. So I, th- I think the club, they, they've, re- you know, they've acknowledged that things, have, things were not right. Um, they have investigated. There hasn't been an attempt to, to 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 sweep this under the carpet. Do these things take time? Well, medical investigations are, are never quick, um, uh, but it's still still a tragedy. You know, and you know, we 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 saw at the weekend uh, what happened in the Leeds versus Manchester United match, yeah. um, and Chris Sutton and others uh, have have been, I think, very quick and and rightly so to say that. Footballers are young men and young women, and they they can they can suffer severe damage, uh, and, and and more should be doing be done because you know your head is your head's very important. You know, in terms of you know, it, it, yeah, we got a skull; it, it is a protective organ, but uh, you know you, you can suffer significant damage. And you know, in terms of what's happened with early onset dementia, um, you know, any head injury should be taken more seriously in terms of concussion. And the authorities are not moving fast enough. So in terms of Ajax, um, I think they've done the right thing. Um, they've acknowledged they've made errors. Um, and they've, they've also retired his number 34 shirt. And, and I think if, um, if, uh, if you think about some of the Dutch players that play in, in the Premier League and elsewhere, you know, fans might wonder why, what, why such and such a player wearing the number 34 shirt. So we've, we've got the likes of Justin Kluivert, Joel Veltman at my club, Brighton, Donny van der Beek, Anwar Ghazi. They wear the number 34 shirt because they've all got connections with Ajax yeah, yeah. in honour of uh, Api Nori. And you know, even if it just makes a few people think twice about if, you, if you're at park football, if somebody gets a concussion injury, somebody gets a head injury, don't say to him, you know, I'm going to show you three fingers, count those three fingers, you're all right, play on. Take it more seriously. Yeah, uh, Chris Sutton, uh, for those of you listening outside the UK, Chris Sutton is an ex-footballer. Uh, uh, I had a relationship with him uh, a long time ago because uh, he had a cameo role in a play that I was involved in. Um, it's not a pundit I often agree with, 
I have to say, or 606. And when you throw Robbie Savage into that mix, it's two reasons why I don't often listen to 606. Um, but I heard him on Sunday talking about the Leeds thing because Chris Sutton is convinced that his dad, who was also a footballer, died because of uh, brain injury incurred by a repetitive heading of the ball. His cold, articulate fury about the Leeds substitute, yeah, the Leeds player being allowed to play on for thirty odd minutes with a head injury was was very impressive. He was abs- absolutely furious. You could tell how emotional he was, but he was absolutely right. Um, and, and when when you see things like the Apinuri story happening five years ago, it's, it's taken too long to come to grips with this. And it's you know mm. when, when we have this. We've got concussion substitutes now, so there's no excuse for taking a risk. It's 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 ludicrous to take any sort of risk with anybody's life, especially when you could quite clearly see it was. A, you know, just watching the game, you could see from the blood, and you could see from his posture that he was in a certain amount of, of pain, and you could see when he came on to the pitch that he wasn't quite right. So it is something that needs to be properly dealt with. Um, if that's not a good news story, this next one is a good news story and it's come as somewhat as a surprise and probably come quicker than we thought it would happen. But the US Soccer Federation, Kieran, and the US Women's National Team have agreed to settle a class action equal pay lawsuit. Yes, the um, the, the, the the US Women's National Team have for a, a long period of time said that we are, you know, we, we're incredibly successful. We, we've won Olympics competitions. We've won the World Cup on a regular basis. Um, why are we the, the poor relations uh, in terms of football? Because women's football in the States is, is at a huge, got a huge profile. Yeah. Um, so they have now just agreed a $22 million settlement. Um, it, it's only about a third of what the uh, what the women's national team were asking for, but yeah, that that's the way of legal settlements. You know, you, you pitch high, you accept low. Um, you know, we, we've seen that uh, in in respect of of, of other settlements in, in other claims and so on. Um, some of that money is going to be uh, allocated specifically for post retirement training um, for people from the US women's national team, which again I, I think is is good. It's progressive. Um, you know. And it stops people with scribbling. The money's just going into players' pockets. It's going to be frittered away. So um, it's an acknowledgement, I, th- I think, of the the huge contribution to women's football that uh, the USA has made uh, in terms of increasing the profile, both domestically and internationally. Um, and, it, and it's acknowledgement of that it, it delivers in terms of viewing figures as well. So that there's yeah. there's little justification in, in having a uh, discriminatory pay structure. Yeah, it, it means, of course, that going forward, horrible phrase, in, let's let's go for in the future. Uh, so men and women who represent the USA will be paid the same amount of money, which is good. And it's it's also a moral victory, Kieran, because it's only two years ago since the, the head of the US Soccer Federation was, was claiming quite openly in, in court that uh, the men's game was faster and more entertaining and more important, and therefore they should be paid more money so this is this is a, a victory for women's football all over the world really isn't it yes yes um and i know that there are some other countries where they, they now have equal pay uh, in respect of the national teams and uh, it's 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 difficult to i think to justify otherwise you know at, at the domestic level there is a case for saying and it, it's very, it is a valid case that ultimately wages are determined by revenue and if the men's uh, you know the men's sort of clubs, club teams are bringing in more revenue. Um, then you, you can see why it's market forces, rightly or wrongly, that, uh, that that leads to the wages which are being paid. But if you are representing your country, then I can't see the same thing applies. You know, you yeah. you are still a proud citizen of either the USA or England or Norway or Nigeria or or China, or, or whatever the country is going to be, it doesn't matter. You you are representing your country. You've got the same pride in wearing the shirt and uh, and, and doing so, and, and therefore surely remuneration should be equal. Yeah, we have one more story, Kieran, before uh, our interview <laughs> with Keith Wines. Uh I, I don't really know... I don't really know how to. I don't. I don't understand it. Okay, I mean, we're men of a certain age, but it says here uh, on this email I've got from producer guy, it says that Manchester City have started building the world's first football stadium 
inside the metaverse. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's a long way from Subutio, isn't it? It's, it's, <laughs> I mean, we thought the, we thought the future would come with you could you could buy a Subutio stand and put that next to you. Not that I did, but you know, it was available. You could you could click it together. And, and put it next to your sofa. Uh, while the generation game was on, you could, you could <laughs> recreate t- today's palace defeat. But yeah, I, I'm coming to grips with the metaverse. But why would why does it need a football stadium? It's going to need more than one for a start, obviously. I don't know. Well, the the argument is it is that Manchester City and of course many other clubs, especially in the Premier League and and, and elsewhere around the world, um, they have fan bases which. Uh, are diverse uh, in, in many ways, in, including geographical representation. Um, and you can only get 54,000 people. Sorry, Kieran, can I just stop you there? When you say diverse in geographical representation, do you mean don't live in Manchester? Yes. Yeah, okay. <laughs> just, just, just so I know. <laughs> um, so um, if, if, you, if you can't get the fans from... Yeah, in, in the case of Manchester City, yeah, clearly they've got a big Middle East fan base. They're they're building up their fan bases elsewhere in the world on, on the back of uh, the incredible success that they've had. If you can't get the fans to Manchester, can you get the stadium to where they are? And and this is what this is what Manchester City are doing with, and I quote, their new official virtual fan engagement partner in the shape in the shape of Sony. So, so what Sony are going to do is they're going to use they, Sony own Hawkeye, which yeah we know from yeah. tennis and, and, and is also involved. I think it's involved in, in uh, VAR as well. So they're going to have they're going to build a, a virtual stadium which uh, will allow you to uh, attend the matches and you can watch the match from you know four four or five hundred different angles during the game. Um, you can then choose your own avatar. To, to represent you in the virtual stadium um, and you can be high-fiving and uh, you know impressing uh, people uh, with with your knowledge of football uh, on this virtual stadium by having virtual conversations with them and, and then presumably uh, you know if, if it's if it was if it's like Brighton's match against Burnley um, uh, on on uh, on Saturday, you c- you can virtually leave fifteen minutes before the end of the match <laughs> and say that you're never going to go again to go and watch that shower of shite. Um, so yeah, you know, so so they're, they're trying to make it um, realistic. Um, so and the aim is, of course, ultimately you're going to be charging money for this. Yeah, so it's 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 trying to work out, and, and football has been struggling to to come to terms with this for for a, for a long period of time. We've got ticket sales. We've got traditional broadcast revenues. We've got commercial income. How else can we extract money from people? Um, and as you say, you know, people not in Manchester or people not in London to watch Palace or not in Brighton to watch Brighton. You know, what what can we do? Um, so so that's that's what they're trying to do. And you would imagine that some of the big clubs, the likes of Real, Liverpool, and, and Bayern, and so on, they they see huge opportunities in this. Um, is the technology there yet? We're probably some way to go, but you know, you and you and I, we 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 both remember Tron, don't we, from when we were yeah. quite young, um, and that's what they've been trying to do for for donkeys years, and and I think they're getting closer and closer. So it's so it's the equivalent of Tron uh, again. Yeah, this is this is BAFTA. BAFTA uh, uh, generating uh, commentary here from me in terms of being so up to date with what's happening in the world. Um, it's, try- it's trying to bring the equivalent of Tron into football and getting people to pay for it. I believe uh, Tron is what somebody called Roddy's referred to in Yorkshire. <laughs> uh, Man City fans have got other things to worry about at the moment. A very good friend of mine, Ina, is a lovely posh lady from Cheshire. If Man City sees a ticket holder, follows them home and away and across Europe, just apoplectic, along with many Man City fans, their game at Sellers Park against us is now at eight o'clock on a Monday. Uh, she just can't get there. It's just ludicrous. It's just ludicrous to ask Man City fans to try and get to Sellers Park for eight o'clock on a Monday. But also, very quickly, Kieran, while we're in Manchester, uh, Man United have been fined, I think, £20,000 for failing to control their players after their outburst against your club last week. Yes, it, it, it was it was superb refereeing from uh, 
Harry Harry Maguire to uh, refer <laughs> refer <laughs> afoul to the uh, <laughs> yeah yeah it, it was the fastest he ran all match. <laughs> um, so yeah yeah that's uh, well, well yeah we the, the, we we didn't take our chances. Manchester United took their took theirs. Yeah, that's football. Yeah, and no 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 issue with them taking the lead, but. Um, what 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 what's come to Manchester United when when they need to have eight players surrounding a referee trying to get a player from Brighton sent off? Yeah, that that's that, that's a pretty low bar that they're setting. We're we're nothing to worry about. Yeah, that's true. Although I wouldn't approve of their behaviour against any other team, Kieran. But obviously, in that circumstance, I know exactly how they feel. Now, it's interview time, Kieran. Uh, and if I asked our listeners. Who manages each Premier League club? They would probably be able to tell you. If I asked them who owns each Premier League club, they'll probably be able to tell you. But I doubt if they'll know who the CEOs are at those clubs. And we spoke to Keith Wyness, who had that role at Aberdeen, Everton and Aston Villa. And I think fans of all three clubs are going to be very interested in this. And I think fans of Villa in particular are going to be very, very interested in what Keith had to say. I'm Steve Lamack and every week I'm joined by Music Allies Head of Insight Stuart Dredge on The Price of Music, the weekly podcast all about the money behind the music industry. In each episode we discuss the very latest goings on in the music business and dig into the finances behind the big stories. So whether you're a music lover who just wants to know more about what really goes on in the industry or you're an aspiring musician, manager or label owner who wants some inside knowledge on how Spotify's financial model really works or what the future holds for independent live music venues, this is a show for you. Subscribe to The Price of Music in your podcast app now. See you soon. Keith, thank you very much for joining us. This sounds like an odd question to start, but what... What is the CEO role? At my club, Crystal Palace, we've got the owners, we've got the chairman, and we've got Phil Alexander, who's uh, a very good CEO. But are they all involved in the decision-making progress, or is it the CEO's job to expedite the decisions made by the owners? It really varies, again, in every club. I mean, each owner has their own particular level of involvement that they want to get into, their own personalities, their own you know, other business commitments that may impinge on their time. So in the three clubs that I've been involved in, it's been probably a slightly different role. Uh, But one thing's for sure, you can be guaranteed that you're going to be left all the problems to try and sort. (laughs) Yeah, fair enough. It it does seem that way at Palace sometimes. It's like Steve Parrish has an idea and it lands on Phil's desk and he has to sort it out. Tell us a little bit about your life before football, Keith. And then if you don't mind, we'll go through your clubs in, in chronological order. Yeah, the brief potted history was after uh, college, I joined the British Airways uh, graduate scheme and had six years at the airline where I was involved in the marketing team for the Concorde. I set up the British Airways Executive Club and was really enjoying the airline, um, having a great time. But we saw the cruise industry was just starting to blossom in the mid-80s. And I left the airline with a friend and we went off to America We raised a load of money, about $125 million, and then built the world's first twin-hull cruise ship with Radisson Hotels. And I ended up having 12 years in Miami, uh, which was fantastic. It was the Miami Vice era and (laughs) uh, was was a pretty exciting place to live at the time. Uh, I was then asked to uh, go down after my British Airways executive club sort of experience. I was asked to go down and do a similar thing for the Sydney Olympics. And so I had five years in Sydney, pre the Olympics uh, organising, which I always said is the hardest job I've ever had, is was to get Australians excited about sport. Uh, so <laughs> we, we did that for them. We, we did all the events leading up to the Games to get them excited and get the whole thing moving. Yeah. And that was fantastic. And I was, I was going to stay down in Australia. I was offered a chance to go in as uh, CEO at the Australian Cricket Board. But um, my father passed away back in Aberdeen, which is my hometown. Yeah. And I went back to look after my mother and uh, wasn't sure what I was going to do because I wasn't very good at oil and gas and the oil rigs. Uh, didn't have much knowledge about fishing or farming. So somebody said, well, why don't you run the football club? And that's how I got involved in football, literally a bit of serendipity. And so yeah. I ended up having a game. Uh, a little bird, well, you, as it happens, told me that you tried your hand at stand-up comedy as well. 
Well, that goes way back to uh, when I first joined British Airways. I was pretty aware that I'd have to do quite a bit of public speaking uh, with the new job. And so I thought there's no better way to uh, try and get over the fear of public speaking than by if you can conquer stand-up, then, you know, everything else is easy. Uh, so I did give it a go and, uh, as I say, got uh, booed off twice and then a lukewarm round of applause on the third time. And I thought, that's it, I'll go out at the top. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it was my third ever stand-up gig. I got booed on and I got booed off. So that was <laughs> that was good going. You, uh, When you went to Aberdeen, you introduced quite radical changes, especially to player contracts. Tell us a little bit about that. And was Did you start introducing those changes because you knew nothing about the world of football? It was certainly, I was one of the, the sort of the few people that were starting to come into football who had come from outside of football. And so it gave us a bit of a fresh uh, start. But the reality is, uh, I wish I could say that it was all innovation and I was this brilliant business brain. But I came into Aberdeen the same year that Sky withdrew their contract from the SPL. Ah. And so there was a huge drop in revenue. And... Um, we had to then do something about completely reorganizing the finances. And so we did bring in a lot more incentive-based payments uh, that the, the players accepted. And so that was really what it was, you know, necessity is mother of invention, so to speak. So uh, that's really where it started from. And I mean, it's a model that other uh, club owners and CEOs have taken. Was it Daniel Levy in particular, it's, it's the sort of model he's based Spurs on, isn't it? Yeah, I think we, we were certainly the first to try it. And you're right, that sort of coming from outside of football allowed me to look at it with some fresh eyes. But uh, it certainly you know, was the, the way that we managed to get the club back on a, on a financially even footing. And so it was pretty important. But then we had the uh, the big battle with the old firm, which is still going on probably today. That was always a huge part of my, uh, my issues at Aberdeen. Do you mean in terms of football or in terms of the distribution of wealth in, in Scotland? Well, it was... You may, I don't know if people look at it now, but still, we actually resigned, 10 clubs actually resigned from the SPL and left Rangers and Celtic alone in the league. Yeah. So they would have been like the Harlem Globetrotters and uh, they'd have had to play themselves continually. And uh, it was a pretty bold move to have, you know, obviously have 10 clubs resign. And living in Scotland at the time, it was it was leading every news headline story. I mean, it was, it was a yeah. huge thing. Uh, but we did actually win the negotiation and got a fairer share of the uh, the spoils going forward. And uh, got to say, it was a, a successful negotiating tactic at the time. Although it really was, um, as I say, a, a major story and led to all sorts of um, different, should we say, issues behind the scenes. Yeah, I can imagine <clears throat> you cross the old firm at your peril. Kieran and I grew up at a time when Scotland was a major force in world football and Scottish clubs were a major force in European football. Do you ever see a time where that can happen again or someone other than Celtic and Rangers can win the title? Yeah, I'm cautiously optimistic that we're seeing a little bit of an improvement in the Scottish um, Scottish game. There's certainly a number of players coming through that seem to be making it the Premier League. You can always judge it by the number of players in the Scottish team that are in the Premier League. And, yeah, the recent national performances have been quite good. Uh, it does appear that clubs like Dundee United and some other clubs have managed to get some good academy you know, work going. Aberdeen, I know, has got a few good academy things going. So I do feel reasonably optimistic about it uh, going forward. And you, you left Aberdeen and went to Everton. Were you headhunted? Yeah, that was the, uh, the issue. Um, I was actually asked to come down. At the same time, I was uh, Doug Ellis had uh, asked me to come and uh, run Villa, but I chose to go with uh, with Bill. And um, really, you know, we moved down. I think my son was born the same week I moved to Everton, and I was introduced at an extraordinary general meeting rather than an annual general meeting when the club was in meltdown. First thing we had to do was sell Wayne Rooney, and yeah. uh, the whole club was in a complete mess. I, I walked into it, and we were on the intensive care list with the bank. Uh, there was all sorts of issues with the staff. They were in seven different locations. There was no cohesion and it, it, the place was in a mess and um, it was an interesting challenge to come into Merseyside at that time. You were an early advocate as well of a move away from Goodison Park. Did, did that make you popular at the club and why did that not happen? Well, that was a really good story, that one. Um, we had we didn't have a wealthy owner at that time and 
part of the the way to try and advance the club was to try and get a new stadium. And we had a particularly good deal with uh, with Tesco's at the time, who were going to be building what was going to be the biggest Tesco's in Britain um, over at um, Knowlesley. And that was going to be an area that would have then given us what they call planning gain and assisted in building the stadium. Now, we actually did ballot all the season ticket holders and uh, the majority were in favour of going. And uh, But I understand there was, there was a group that didn't want to leave Goodison. Of course, I understand that. We love Goodison, but it really is a difficult stadium to actually manage and to get revenue. Yeah. And um, we then hit the financial crisis in 2008, which everybody suffered from. And, of course, Tesco's decided, well, it's not the right time to build our biggest Tesco's in one of the most depressed areas in Britain. So the whole uh, planning, it got called in and it didn't go ahead. Um, obviously, it's it's great to see now the new stadium Everton's going to get. Um, but at that time, it was what we felt was the right opportunity. But uh, with hindsight, now with a new you know, new owner, etc., uh, it's probably good it didn't go ahead. Is it fair to say, Keith, that at the time you thought that Liverpool City Council looked more favourably on one club in the city than the other? Uh, yes, uh, there was always, I mean, that whole city, the city's red and blue. I mean, it, it is, and there's, there's always shades of politics getting involved. I did think that uh, we were not supported properly by the local uh, council at the time. And we had issues also with, with all sorts of people. I mean, like the chief constable at the time was Bernard Hogan Howe. And right. he was a nightmare to deal with. And, um, you know, it, it's just part of the, the, the sort of the landscape for a chief executive to to take whatever you're dealt with in terms of your local authorities and just, you just have to handle the issues and get through it. And why have you got a relationship with the Chief Constable in the first place? So is, is, surely he's beyond the sort of normal day-to-day match-day policing of games, isn't he? Well, you'd have thought so, but uh, he saw the club. I mean, he, he was a classic sort of... His main hobbies were equestrian. And ah. all he would see was headlines about football was that, you know, we were signing players for supposedly huge amounts of money. Right. And so when his budget was being squeezed, he thought, ah, well, here's a source of cash for us. Uh, we'll go and put up our police prices by 45%. Oh, wow. Uh, just, you know, on, the, on a whim. And, of course, once you've done your budget, you can't sort of have that sort of cost. So I had to educate him into the reality of it. And uh, he threatened us with taking away the safety certificate and things like that. And I said, okay, well, you know, if you're going to do that, then you be the person that can explain to the fans on Merseyside that you're stopping their football. Yeah, and I think you might see a different uh, different side to it. Yeah, you talk about budgets there. Uh, Bill Kenwright, I have to say, is always incredibly generous to me when I went to Goodison Park in a broadcasting capacity, uh, and I like him. But was was your problem the fact that Bill was a very very loyal and staunch Everton fan and a, a very committed owner, but his pockets weren't anywhere near as deep as some of the other clubs in the Premier League, and, and they were, yeah, they were getting deeper and deeper by the month, weren't they, those pockets? Yeah, I mean, there was that time when we were probably the same, there was probably four or five clubs like Newcastle, Villa, Everton, Spurs, were all West Ham, all about the same sort of abilities. And it hadn't really exploded um, into the, you know, the big mega money at the time, just then. It was just about to happen. And look, I loved Bill to death, and we had a great uh, relationship together and still do. Uh, but yes, I mean, he, he knew himself he wasn't the, the deepest of pockets. And that's what led to some issues and uh, led me to resign in the end. You mentioned Newcastle uh, there, Keith. I, I read a really interesting thing on an Everton supporters website around the time of the Saudi takeover of Newcastle saying that Everton fans simply wouldn't accept that sort of deal. They would, they would protest. Do you think... Do you think that's right? Do you think there are fans of other Premier League clubs that would have turned around and said, we don't want the Saudis taking over? That's a tricky one. Uh, I hadn't thought about that myself. I, I think football fans just tend to really want to see the team succeed. And having yeah. Man City and Chelsea sort of set the precedent, uh, I think if they'd been the first club to have done it with Saudi, it might have been more of an issue. But now we're seeing that you've got to have these sort of uh, sums to compete I think fans can sort of understand that uh, it may be in the best interest of the club, although there is no doubt there would be strong political sentiment in Everton. Uh, and as you, you know, as I've seen at Newcastle, I mean, we all talk about sports washing, but in many ways, this has kept the whole Khashoggi thing in the spotlight. Yeah. Uh, 
And so, you know, it hasn't necessarily made it go away very far from it in, in many cases. So I think there would have been uh, certain protests that would have carried on, but I think overall it probably would have gone through at Everton. Yeah. So as you say, you resigned from Everton. You you had a break from football. Uh, before we talk about you being lured back to Villa, uh, what did you do during that break from football? I was mainly working with uh, different football federations around the world. I did a lot of work in the Middle East and helping oh, yeah. them re- reorganise their, their football structures. Uh, did work in India and Canada and some work back in Australia. Uh, so it was mainly helping either federations or clubs and trying to you know, help them reorganise themselves. And so it gave me a chance to uh, get out of the day-to-day focus and of you know being the, the, the go-to guy during the, you know, the media and the local media and uh, get a chance to really do some more thinking about football and uh, enjoyed some travels. In, India must have been a fascinating experience because you've got, I imagine, a tricky one as well because you've got a huge country but with what seems like very little interest in football. Well, it is it's it is strange. There are basically two FAs in India right. and the country is split west and east as to the governance of the game. And the rivalries on the East Coast are absolutely phenomenal. They're still getting crowds of 100,000 in some games. Oh, well, really? Yeah. And then on the West Coast, where I was based around Mumbai and Pune, uh, it isn't quite um, quite so strong in terms of the following, but still it's, it's growing massively. Uh, but it's an absolutely fascinating environment. And to find some way to link football and cricket together was what we were trying to do in terms of facilities and uh, training facilities, etc., and also to find ways in India to, to grow the the base of the people that you need to effectively administer football. So you needed all the, the groundsmen, the ticket office managers, you needed the, the sports media journalists, you needed um, the sports physios, and we had to try and create you know education networks to develop all those things uh, to, to let the, the game flourish, and so that was an interesting challenge. So how do you go about linking football to cricket? Is it as simple as getting cricket clubs to open football teams as well? Well, there was partly the ownership issue, but it was more about, and the one challenge that India has got is stadia. And it was about linking stadia that could be dual use in some way. And that was the main challenge we tried to work on in Mumbai and down in Pune, was uh, working on those areas to try and create a showcase project that could be a dual purpose and if we could you know make that coincide with joint ownership that would have been the model to go forward so you were lured back to english football uh, as ceo aston villa in 2016 i believe by the new owner tony shear uh, it turned out to be quite a volatile time but so before we talk about that let me ask you a neutral question first you worked at everton you worked at villa huge clubs with a massive history and tradition how do you manage the expectations of fans at those clubs? I mean, especially at somewhere like Villa, where the first thing you notice when you're in the ground is the, you know, the commentary of the European Cup winning goal running around the four stands. It's huge expectations. So how do you manage that? Well, actually, it was the same at Aberdeen. I mean, you know, you look back at Aberdeen. Of course, of course. With Fergie, there was the same thing, and that was a, a one-town club. Um, I think you manage the expectations. I mean, luckily, I know football inside out. I've always been a fan from that point of view. So if you understand the history, you understand the the clubs and you get to know the personality of the club before you're there, that helps you position yourself correctly. And I think it's really just being available and communicating with the fans as best you can and letting them know that you understand them and that you understand the club and the history and uh, just be seen as um, being that sort of person who's genuinely you know, in touch with what the club stands for. Yeah. This is the bit that Villa fans will be waiting for. Your your time at Villa with Tony Shell was described by the Birmingham Mail as two of the unhappiest years the club has ever endured. But, spoiler alert, you uh, ended up being completely vindicated later on. What what was so poisonous about your relationship with, with the new owner there? What, what went wrong? Because obviously you would have gone in there with, with high hopes, great optimism. You were about to get promoted out of the Championship, back into the Premier League, and it seemed like all was looking rosy for Villa, but then clearly even outsiders recognised there was something not quite right going on. Well, you're not quite right there, Kevin, with your timing, because actually when I took over, we'd just been relegated. Oh, it's um, my mistake. Okay, you came, yeah, you came back two years later. Yes. Yes. yes, it was the second season I was there that we actually got into the yes. playoff final. So coming in 
on the back of relegation was really difficult. I mean, the whole staff were absolutely destroyed. They'd been kicked from pillar to post. The squad was going to have to be completely um, you know, sorted out. I got in there with six weeks to go before the uh, the season started, and I had to hire a director of football at the same time as trying to do all the director of football job myself. And I think we had 12 in and 12 out uh, in that uh, period of time in the six weeks. And I think they always say that if you for every one deal that happens, you're probably working on five, which is yeah. probably a rule of thumb. So you can imagine there's like about 125 deals we're working on for um, that period of time. So it was a crazy period, but... Um, and then we uncovered all sorts of issues behind the scenes at uh, at Villa. And what I'd realised I'd taken over was more like a catering company that happened to be playing football. <laughs> uh, and it, it was strange the way it was unbalanced. And I tried to bring it back to being focused on being a football club and to win football matches. And that's what uh, we tried to do. Now, at the same time, I was having my hands tied behind my back by the owner who thought because he played football manager and because he watched games on TV in China, he thought he knew everything about football and he hired, uh, he interviewed two managers and appointed one straight away after one interview, Roberto Di Matteo. Yeah. And um, we didn't have the the best start to that first season, I think. And after 12 games, Roberto had to go. So the problem, though, was mainly that, again, he, I'll give you an idea of the philosophy of Tony Jarre. He, he believed that, footballers should be like artificial intelligence machines that should know that whatever opposition was coming at them, they should know that what there's a hundred moves that they should be able to program in their mind as to how to counteract and then move forward. And I said, well, that's okay, Tony. I said, you know, look, you've got to have a hundred different things the footballers got to remember. I said, that's fine. I said, but Jack Grealish can't even remember his own name. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know how you're going to get on with that. Uh, He had a a lack of appreciation of these sort of things, but was insistent on things being done in a certain way. But he started to realise as the first 12 games went on that perhaps he didn't know as much as he, he did. And then he left us to get on with the new change in manager when Steve Bruce came in. And we eventually, as I say, got to the playoff final the next season. So that was a relatively uh, quick turnaround. As you say, Keith, you know football inside out. And he clearly didn't. But did he buy the club with good intent, do you think? Or or was he just so out of his depth financially and, and in terms of knowledge of football that it, things went wrong for him? Well, what's come out of this is... This all comes back to a degree, and I did a, a lecture the other day on the owners and directors test as well. This is something that's pretty pretty important. It turns out now, after the event, that we found out it wasn't his money. And right. he was representing a syndicate in China uh, that were investing in the club. Now, he's now in jail and probably deserves to be there, and I hope he's in there for a long time. Uh, but he, we, we couldn't check him out, and neither could the Football League because the, the veil of opaque things in China is so very hard to penetrate that veil. Yeah. He might have had best intentions himself, but he didn't. He wasn't truthful and honest in the way he bought it. And the whole issues that we had in the end were because he ran out of money. And from the February, we didn't get one penny from him until the May of the playoff final. And so that was always going to put us into a very difficult position. You know, I, I know that you and I have a similar age, Keith, but if I didn't know that, I would have known by your ringtone that you and I are of certain age when your phone went off. So what what were the circumstances of you leaving uh, Villa then? And, and also tell us, I, I said you were completely vindicated. That that vindication happened a couple of years after you left the club, didn't it? Yeah, unfortunately, I had to, um, to sue for unfair dismissal, etc., constructive dismissal. And the case took about 18 months to two years to come to the actual trial, and uh, it was all settled the, uh, the day before the trial. Uh, to me, the facts were, were very clear, and uh, what had happened was there was also a, another shady character from uh, the sort of the, the dark side of football, a guy called Chris Samuelson, who has been the subject of a major football documentary by Al Jazeera called The Men Who uh, Bought Football. Yeah, and, and he was involved, who brought Jar to the club, and was also involved in having me suspended uh, at the time when all the problems were going on. Uh, I was trying to do things by the book and preserve that, obviously, as best I could. But they had their own um, their own ideas and their own agenda as to what they were going to try and exact from Villa. Do you think the Premier League's owners and directors' uh, rules go far enough now? 
I don't. I mean, look, they they go. What they do go for is, you know, have you got criminality and all the rest of it? That, but that's fine. But I do think there's got to be some form of either a bond for financial performance, uh, particularly in the case of a Chinese owner. And I'm not saying all Chinese owners are bad because there are good owners and bad owners. I don't think it is necessarily the nationality. Uh, but if you are a good owner and you have got the correct resources, then there should be some form of bonding to underwrite expenditure. So I think that's one area that would have to be looked at. Uh, I'm aware, Keith, we, we do have some time issues. I do. There's a couple of questions I'm keen to ask you. The first one is a pretty open one. But with your inside knowledge of football currently, what are the biggest problems you think facing English football? What What changes would you make? Um, the biggest problem, I think, is the, the FA and the actual running of the that side of the game. I don't think the FA is fit for purpose. Uh, I think they have really got to improve the areas of regulation in terms of the refereeing, in terms of the actual regulation of the game on that side of the FA. I think the Premier League's doing a reasonable job, and I think we've got to look at that. Now, one area that I've advocated and been very keen on is in the same way the Premier League broke away back in the, you know, the 90s, I think now is the time for a Premier League too and to take uh, a number of clubs from the Championship yeah. and possibly have 18 clubs in each of those two divisions and start to have a Premier League too, which I think there is an appetite for a Premier League too in terms of the media rights. It would help the distribution between both those, uh, those 36 clubs considerably. It would allow to ease some pressure on the uh, the number of games being played as well. So I think that's one area that has to be a, a complete rethink uh, in terms of the actual structure. I, I'm i glad you said that. I've been predicting for quite some time, uh, certainly since the last time Palace got relegated, that a Premier League 2 would be inevitable simply because of the problems financially being caused by the relegated clubs struggling to get back in. And, and, and on that note, and I know Kieran would be cross if I didn't ask you about this. What are your views on parachute payments? Well, this is what I'm saying Premier League 2 is, because I think parachute payments are fundamentally wrong. Um, They skew the whole championship, they encourage more spending, and they don't really do what they're supposed to do. Whereas a Premier League 2, well, it wouldn't, um, you know, make those two divisions, obviously, you know, on on a level playing field. It would certainly mean that the gap wouldn't be so big. And also there'd be 18 clubs in that Premier League too that would be able to share the increased media rights. And as we see more movement towards the streaming of games and, and those sort of companies are coming into football more for the streaming rights, I do think the media values would be there to give us a very good share. And I also think there'd be a very good payment down the pyramid from there into what would then become League One, Two. And I think the National League is now strong enough to step up to be the third league. So I think yeah. Yeah, that sort of restructure is, is timely now and I think it has to be looked at. You, you clearly have strong views on football, Keith, uh, and it's difficult to get those views across when you're not in the game, but w- will you come back to the game? Have you had enough of it? No, I love it. And still a lot of great friends and contacts within the game. I'm involved now in, in a number of uh, potential buy-sell situations with clubs. And uh, again, now, of course, with my experience, I'd be sure it's the right owner. Uh, before I came back in. Uh, But given that, and if you're involved at the start of the process, then you can satisfy yourself you're dealing with the right people. I would love to get back in at the right time. Well, let's hope you do. And when you do, Keith, we'll we'll talk to you again uh, from a position as an insider. And it sounds like the game needs people like you who at least think outside the box. Uh, It's been a pleasure talking to you, Keith. Thank you very much. Great. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks very much. Cheers. That was fascinating, Kieran. I think we will have to get Keith back on the show because I, I get the sense that uh, it, he has a lot more to say uh, about certain things. There's, there's two things that I really picked up on. First, we said the FA are not fit for purpose. But secondly, the fact that when he was a villain, not only did it turn out, as he mentioned in, in that documentary, not only did it turn out that Shah wasn't the proper owner of the club, he was, he was the front man for a syndicate, but also it turned out there was somebody else pulling the strings. And that's astonishing that the CEO didn't discover that until afterwards. Well, I think that is indicative of the murky world of football. Uh, and uh, I was involved in that Al Jazeera documentary as well. 
uh, and the uh, the person to whom Keith referred um, was was should we say the star of the show? Yeah, uh, but uh, not not in an Oscar winning way. Yeah, and you agree with Keith the idea of a, a large financial bond being paid before somebody takes over a club? Do you think that's the right way to go? Yeah, this this is the one of the one of the things I think we we we've suggested on a few occasions. I mean, the only the only reservation. I have with regards to that, and, and it, it, I think it acts as a really good method of preventing the tire kickers coming in who think they can buy the club for nothing, sell it a few months later, and make a profit. So, so it's good in that regard. But on the other hand, what do you do in situations as you had at Palace, where you know, had it not been for Steve Parish coming in, um, you know, the club might not be in existence, and there were similar issues at Brighton and Bolton and other clubs um, where the, there is. There is a genuine need for somebody to rescue, and and perhaps you don't look too closely. Certainly, that was the case at at Bolton, at Wigan as well, um, because you've you've got the you know the next week's payroll to to pay, and and there's nobody else to step forward to get involved in it. So it's it's a really delicate one. I mean, I I'm, I, I think Keith's right. If if we have if we have perhaps a, you know some sort of deposit, and that that goes into a a fund which can be used for clubs in distress that that's that could work in its favor um, thank you uh, for listening as ever if you'd like to make a small contribution to our always free to air podcast then please do so at patreon.com slash price of football and if you have a question for our questions pod on monday then just email it to questions at price of football.com and in the meantime i shall hand you over to mr kieran mcguire for his customary farewell well, as always, folks, thanks very much for the support for the show. We do appreciate it in all the ways that you uh, uh, you send us love and cash um, <laughs> from Patreon, which, which is which is almost as important. Um, if if you want to support the the show in any way, um, the, uh, the 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 price of football live uh, we we have now sold out. That there might be a few returns. We might be able to get another table um, uh, for another ten ten or so seats, but we're not quite sure as yet. Um, but but we do appreciate that, we're, and we're, we're slightly befuddled as to why uh, you're coming along. But but we'll we'll do our damn damnedest to make sure that you go away with a smile on your face. Um, uh, if, you, if you want to support the the show in in any other way, you can do so by by going on to your podcast uh, app uh, on your smartphone and, uh, and and giving us a review. And and you, you if you give us five stars, we we'd be very 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 honoured, very very chuffed. Um, it doesn't matter what you say. On the review, you could say you would rather have it hosted by Linda Lusardi and Beaker from the Muppets, and it, and it wouldn't make a blind bit of difference, apparently, to the algorithms of Apple and Co. Uh, it, it still helps us in the charts, and it, and it helps us to have credibility when we're trying to book guests. Do you know what? I've worked with both of those. Have you? <laughs> <laughs> both delightful. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Bye. The price of football. I'm for the